If you were in a legal term, it'd be the fruit from the poisonous tree. Mmm, sounds delicious. If you're in the legal term, Kevin McCarthy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle Here of the Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, And all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling episode of the world-famous Bradcast. Donald Trump took renewed aim at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff in a late-morning tweet, according to the Washington Post today. The tweet, however, included a typo. Aww. It read, Sad. Nervous Nancy Pelosi is doing everything possible to destroy the Republican Party. Our polls show that is going to be just the opodite. (laughs) That's what he tweeted. Uh, Opodite. Yes, he went on to say the do-nothing Dems will lose many seats in 2020. They have a death wish led by a corrupt politician, Adam Schiff. Uh, he also called for Adam Schiff to be impeached or worse. Now, of course, a congressman cannot be impeached, and I'm not sure what he means by worse. Oh, details, shmeetails. Yes. Trump corrected the uh, spelling error about a half hour later, however, with a uh, replacing it with a fresh tweet, perhaps after he went out and enjoyed a hamburger. Anyway, welcome to the broadcast. More on the ongoing impeachment inquiry as the president and Republican defenders of the president in Congress appear to be at the stage of throwing anything and everything against the wall to see what, if anything, might stick. Incredibly enough, even though Democrats unveiled their resolution to set rules for the upcoming public impeachment hearings today to be voted on on Thursday, Republicans are still complaining about a lack of due process somehow. We will speak with George Washington University Law School professor and former assistant U.S. attorney for D.C., Randall Eliason, about the merits of that argument shortly. And, of course, 
Republicans have good reason to freak out, given the damning testimony on Tuesday from a longtime military Iraq war vet and foreign affairs expert who served as the uh, Ukraine expert on Donald Trump's own National Security Council and who listened to the infamous call between Trump and Ukraine President Zelensky live and reported his concerns about it all to the NSE's top attorney twice. We'll get to that in a moment. And Desi Doyen's latest Green News report a little bit later. Uh, But first, some happy and long overdue voting news today. We have discussed many times on this program the insane gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering of North Carolina's congressional maps, which have allowed for just three Democrats in North Carolina's 13-seat congressional delegation for the entire past decade. That despite the fact that the state is, or at least used to be, about as closely divided as any state can possibly be. It narrowly uh, elected Barack Obama in 2008. It narrowly went for Mitt Romney in 2012. It went for Donald Trump in 2016. But at the same time, on the very same ballot, it elected a Democratic governor and other Democratic officials in the statewide elections uh, on that very same ballot. So a very close state. And yet, for some reason, year after year after year, Only three Democrats seem to go to uh, Congress uh, and 10 Republicans do, thanks to the gerrymandering by Republicans in that state. The evidence against the fairness of the Republican-drawn maps, notes Stephen Wolf of Daily Coast Elections, is nothing short of overwhelming. Republicans explicitly stated that their lines were a, quote, political gerrymander, drawn, in fact, to maintain the GOP's 10 to 3 advantage in the state and admitted that they didn't go further in drawing their their lines only because they thought it was literally impossible to draw a map that would guarantee them 11 seats. Republicans made that admission in a perverse defense of a new map that they had created in 2016 after their previous districts were thrown out, were tossed out for being illegally racial gerrymanders, diminishing the power of black voters. In other words, said the GOP, we didn't draw an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. We drew a partisan gerrymander, which the U.S. Supreme Court had never found to be constitutional up to that point. Never mind that race and party are strongly correlated, notes Stephen. That display of chutzpah, he writes, already came close to derailing Republicans just last year when a federal court found that, yes, partisan gerrymanders did indeed violate the U.S. Constitution. The GOP, however, was bailed out when Republicans on the stolen U.S. Supreme Court ruled that claims of excessive partisanship in electoral maps might be bad, but it can't be litigated in the federal court system. Chief Justice John Roberts, in his opinion, said that such maps, however, could be challenged under state law in state court, under state constitutions. And the plaintiffs in this case took that to heart. They immediately filed a challenge in North Carolina state court. And guess what? As the Charlotte News and Observer reported Uh, Last night, North Carolina's 2020 congressional elections must happen under new maps. 
A panel of judges ruled Monday evening holding that the current Republican-drawn maps are unfair to many voters. The legislature must now redraw the state's 13 U.S. House districts, according to a three-judge state court panel. The judges, two Democrats and one Republican from different parts of North Carolina, wrote that the current maps show signs of, quote, extreme partisan gerrymandering, which is, quote, contrary to the fundamental right of North Carolina citizens to have elections conducted freely and honestly to ascertain fairly and truthfully the will of the people, unquote. Thank you, your honors. The ruling on Monday is a preliminary injunction in the case, but it is one that will stand it looks like for the 2020 elections, because the trial in the case would not happen in time to change these maps. And the judges said that the state may not hold any elections for Congress using the current maps passed in 2016. Those maps replaced a different set of maps from uh, 2011. As I noted, they were also drawn drawn by uh, Republican led uh, legislature at the time. They were struck down as unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. So they replaced it with another unlawful map. The judges ruled that if there are not new maps in time for the primary elections on March 3 of next year, then the judges themselves could delay some or all of the primaries until later in 2020. In other words, yeah, no excuses at this point. You guys got to draw the maps. Candidate filing deadlines for 2020 are in December, so basically the legislature has just a few weeks to act if it wants to avoid delaying the elections entirely, unless lawmakers decide to fight that decision instead, which they could also do by appealing. But after losing a separate lawsuit just last month in the same court, over the state legislative lines, that's different from the Congress uh, congressional lines. These are the uh, state, Senate, and Assembly lines. They lost uh, that one as well last month. After that, GOP lawmakers decided not to appeal that ruling, and they were, in fact, able to meet a two-week deadline to draw new maps at the time. So, so they, when they have the incentive, yeah. when a ruling focuses their minds, they may they be able do to it. do it. Yep. Yeah. Eric Holder, the former U.S. attorney general who has been part of an effort to challenge congressional lines around the country, said, quote, for nearly a decade, Republicans have forced the people of North Carolina to vote in districts that were manipulated for their own partisan advantage. Now, finally, the era of Republican gerrymandering in the state is coming to an end. Good news in North Carolina, I should add for a change. Okay, uh, more, well, I don't know if I would call this good news, but uh, damning news in any event. White House national security official who is a decorated Iraq war veteran is telling House impeachment investigators on Tuesday that he personally heard President Trump appeal to Ukraine's president to investigate one of his leading political rivals, a request the aide considered so damaging to American interests that he reported it to a superior twice. This according to the uh, New York Times. You may have heard the news by now, but it is uh, so damning, it seems, that it's worth underscoring just in case you haven't. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman of the Army, the top Ukraine expert, 
on the White House's National Security Council twice registered internal objections about how Donald Trump and his inner circle were treating Ukraine out of what he called a, quote, sense of duty, according to a draft of his opening statement that was obtained by The New York Times on Monday night. He is the first White House official to testify who actually listened in on the July 25 phone call between Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. That is at the center of the impeachment inquiry in which Trump asked Zelensky to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Vindman says in his uh, remarkable statement, I did not think it was proper to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen, and I was worried about the implications for the U.S. government's support of Ukraine. I realized that if Ukraine pursued an investigation into the Bidens and Burisma, that's the energy company on whose board Biden's son served while his dad was vice president, that it would likely be interpreted as a partisan play which would undoubtedly result in Ukraine losing the bipartisan support that it has thus far maintained. This would all undermine U.S. national security, Colonel Vindman added. The colonel is a Ukrainian-American immigrant who received a Purple Heart after being wounded in Iraq by a roadside bomb and whose statement is full of references to duty and patriotism. He said, I am a patriot. And it is my sacred duty and honor to advance and defend our country, irrespective of party politics. Vinman details in his statement how he came here as a child with his family in 1979, fleeing from the Soviet Union, and how his father worked multiple jobs to support them while wor uh, working to learn English. He said, in spite of our challenging beginnings, my family worked to build its own American dream. I have a deep appreciation for American values and ideals and the power of freedom. I am a patriot, and it is my sacred duty and honor to advance and defend our country, irrespective of party politics. His background here, his CV, is uh, pretty amazing. He served as an infantry officer, uh, multiple tours overseas, including South Korea and Germany, and a deployment to Iraq for combat operations where he was wounded by an IED attack and awarded the Purple Heart. Since 2008, he says he's been a foreign affairs officer specializing in Eurasia. He served in the U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, Moscow, Russia, in Washington, D.C., he was a politico-military affairs officer for Russia for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, where he authored the principal strategy for managing competition with Russia. In July 2018, he was then asked to serve at the National Security Council to serve under Donald J. Trump. In his testimony, Colonel Vindman says he is not the whistleblower who initially reported Trump's pressure campaign on Ukraine. He testified that he uh, watched with alarm as outside influencers began pushing a false narrative about Ukraine that was counter to the consensus view of American national security officials and harmful, he says, to the U.S. interests. Uh, according to documents that were re reviewed by The Times on the eve of his testimony, Colonel Vindman was concerned as he discovered Rudy Giuliani was leading an effort to prod Kiev to investigate Biden's son and to discredit the efforts to investigate Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort. He also testifies that he confronted Gordon Sondland, 
the uh, U.S. ambassador to the European Union the day that the envoy spoke in a White House meeting with Ukrainian officials about, quote, Ukraine delivering specific investigations in order to secure the meeting with the president. Even as he expressed alarm about the pressure campaign, the colonel and other officials worked to keep the U.S. relationship with Ukraine on track at the direction of his superiors at the National Security Council, which includes John Bolton. And I told you when we talked with uh, Heather uh, Digby Parton a few weeks ago, I said, is John Bolton going to be turn out to be the hero in this story? Well, don't rush into it yet, but it does seem like he might actually have some patriotic feeling toward his own country. I would not have guessed it. Uh, But uh, in any event, um, so he at the direction of his superiors, Colonel Vindman drafted a memorandum in mid-August seeking to restart security aid that was being withheld from Ukraine, but Donald Trump refused to sign it, according to documents reviewed by The Times. And Vindman drafted a letter in May congratulating President Zelensky on his inauguration, but guess what? Donald Trump did not sign that either, according to the documents. Vindman was concerned after he learned that the White House Budget Office had taken the unusual step of withholding $391 million of security assistance for Ukraine that had been approved by Congress. Colonel Vindman said he had reported his concerns up the chain of command because he believed he was obligated to do so. He says, on many occasions, I have been told I should express my views and share my concerns with my chain of command and proper authorities. I believe that any good military officer should and would do the same thing, thus providing his or her best advice to leadership. Well, I happened to be hearing uh, Rush Limbaugh earlier today, and he was blasting this colonel as some sort of Biden buddy and George Soros stooge. And because he was born in Ukraine when it was controlled by the old Soviet Union, he left at the age of three and a half years of age. Uh, Because of that, he's now somehow tainted. He has an allegiance to that country. They are sliming this guy in the right wing fever swamps. Uh, But you know what? There is very little these guys will not do at this point. And I think this guy's uh, testimony, Vindman, is going to be just a hell of a problem for Republicans, particularly when and if he uh, testifies in public. But they are doing everything they can to discredit uh, all of these impeachment witnesses, even longtime career civil servants and military veterans and any way they can come up with. They're even trying to uh, slime the impeachment process itself, but that does not appear to be working. Let's take a quick break here, and we'll be joined by former federal prosecutor and current law school professor and Washington Post op-ed contributor Randall Eliason for his informed response to the seemingly ridiculous due process arguments still being made by Donald Trump's apparatchiks in Congress as impeachment moves forward anyway. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, after Donald Trump's top U.S. envoy to Ukraine, longtime career State Department official Ambassador Bill Taylor testified to House impeachment investigators that he was told that the president himself was personally behind the pressure campaign to withhold assistance to Ukraine unless their new president got to a microphone to announce that he was opening an investigation into 2020 presidential candidate Joe Biden and Ukraine's supposed involvement in the 2016 election. After that, it looked like, uh, to some anyway, that it was game over in the case against the president, who had overseen the withholding of some $400 million in congressionally allocated military assistance to Ukraine in hopes of forcing Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, to comply with Trump's requirement that the nation help Trump in his 2020 re-election campaign. After Taylor's damning testimony, Connecticut's Democratic Senator Chris Murphy tweeted, quote, Listen, there's now zero doubt about what was going on. The texts and testimony make it clear the president was using the using access to the White House and security aid as leverage to get a foreign nation to help him destroy his political rivals. That's not allowed in a democracy ever, wrote the senator. Nonetheless, neither Trump nor his Republican allies in Congress were done fighting. A day or so later, some of the president's closest allies in the House stormed the secure facility in the Capitol basement where impeachment investigators were meeting to protest the behind-closed-doors depositions that the uh, three different House committees led by Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff were taking even though about half of those Republicans who stormed the room to protest the secret star chamber were actually members of those committees and allowed to not only attend those depositions, but question the witnesses along with their own Republican staff attorneys. No due process, the stormers claimed. The president's attorneys were not allowed to question witnesses during those sessions. Trump was not allowed to face his accuser, the still unknown whistleblower who initially tipped off Congress about uh, Trump's strong arm pressure scheme against Ukraine. And all of it, both the White House and their House apparatchik complained, was unconstitutional since Congress never voted to hold an impeachment inquiry in the first place. By Friday of late last week, as attorney Ernest Canning detailed at great length at Bradblog.com, Judge Beryl A. Howell, the chief judge at the uh, U.S. District Court in D.C., seemed to eviscerate the Republican argument that the impeachment proceedings were unconstitutional for lack of a floor vote in the House. 
The court flat out rejected DOJ efforts to question the validity of the impeachment inquiry, Canning wrote, citing Judge Howell's ruling that Article One of the U.S. Constitution grants exclusive authority to the U.S. House of Representatives to establish its own rules with respect to the conduct of an impeachment inquiry. Neither the judiciary nor the executive branch may tell Congress what rules it must adopt, Howell wrote in her 75-page response. That, too, should have been the end of the Republicans' no-due-process defense. But Republicans, seemingly desperate now to come up with something, with anything to derail the increasingly damning testimony that continues to roll in from witness after witness, Confirming that original whistleblower report, well, Republicans never say die. On Monday, Democrats announced they would, in fact, be holding a full floor vote on impeachment this week to send the rules of upcoming public hearings featuring public questioning of a number of the witnesses that have been deposed behind closed doors by both Democrats and Republicans to the floor for a full House vote on the impeachment inquiry. And as if all of that was not enough, you would think the damning testimony on Tuesday from a decorated Iraq war vet and longtime foreign policy expert, the top Ukraine expert on Donald Trump's own National Security Council, who listened live to the infamous July 25 call between Trump and Zelensky and was so alarmed that he went twice to the NSA's top attorney to report his concern that the scheme was threatening national security, you might think that that would finally put this silly due process complaint to bed. But, yes, never say die. Washington Post is reporting today that, quote, President Trump and Republican lawmakers assailed the impeachment process as House investigators heard testimony for the first time from a White House official who listened in on the controversial Trump call at the heart of the Ukraine controversy. Moreover, the paper reports GOP members dismissed the significance of a planned vote this Thursday to formalize the rules of impeachment going forward with Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming chair of the House Republican Conference, claiming Democrats are, quote, now attempting to put a cloak of legitimacy around this process. It won't work, she said. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, when asked if the upcoming floor vote would change his assessment, said the process was already too deeply flawed to be legitimate. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. A due process starts at the beginning. It doesn't affirm a myth-sham investigation all the way through. If you were in a legal term, it'd be the fruit from the poisonous tree. It'd be a mistrial. None of this, none of this information would go forward. Well, that seems like desperation to me, but then again, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. Randall Eliasson, on the other hand, is both a lawyer and a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School. He's also a writer and commentator on corporate and white-collar criminal law and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the Public Corruption and Government Fraud Section. His writings on federal criminal law have appeared in scholarly journals, his own sidebars blog, and as a regular contributor to the Washington Post, where last week his latest op-ed was headlined, The Republicans' Due Process Arguments Are Nonsense. Oh, Counselor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. 
Glad to be back. When I read your Washington Post piece last Thursday, uh, Randall, which which seems like an eternity ago now, by the way, uh, I wanted to talk to you about your argument that the GOP claims about a lack of due process are frivolous. But in the subsequent days with Judge Beryl Howe's ruling and the Dems' announcement that they'd be holding a vote on impeachment this week, it almost seems like the argument is so obvious or, or moot at this point that it no longer even merits discussion. Uh, based on those remarks from both the president and the House Majority Leader today, however, uh, they are still making the case that the impeachment lacks due process and is thus irreparably tainted. Your response to that, uh, Randall? Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's a saying in Washington uh, that if you're arguing about process, you're losing. And <laughs> I think that's certainly the case here. Um, but the process arguments seem to be all they have. And as you said, in the last few days, that they've kind of shifted mm-hmm. and become, I think, increasingly... Uh, desperate, or sounding mm-hmm. increasingly desperate, but, but they've been sort of silly from, from day one, which was the point of that article to begin with, uh, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, as, as you already mentioned, Republicans are represented in these committee hearings that, you know, where, where they stormed the, the skiff and mm-hmm. were protesting the secret star chamber proceeding, claiming they'd been locked out of it and had no idea what was going on. There are Republicans on those committees who are present answering, uh, asking questions of the witnesses and, and know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is there was always going to be a public process, or would have to be before the House would take an actual impeachment vote. They're going to have to lay out the evidence for the entire House to vote on. Mm-hmm. So what's going on at this stage, at the investigative stage, when they're taking these depositions behind closed doors, gathering information, it's very common for those to not be public, and there are a lot of good reasons for that. It's sort of analogous to a criminal grand jury investigation where the secrecy protects witnesses from possible retaliation, it protects witnesses from hearing what other witnesses are saying and getting their stories straight. And quite frankly, uh, especially when it comes to congressional hearings, those televised hearings are a terrible way to try to gather information because they quickly descend into people trying to score political points and, and arguing about process and things like that, and asking they're trying to ask questions in five-minute increments when they're really more interested in making a speech that, that can generate a soundbite than, than getting at the truth. They're just terrible ways to find information. So mm-hmm. these closed-door depositions are actually much more effective. Yeah. But again, you know, the Republicans are taking part in that process, and then what will follow is a public presentation, House hearings, where they will put this evidence before the entire House and the American people before asking anybody to vote on impeachment. So, you know, whatever process is due to a president being impeached, there's no question that President Trump is getting it. Uh, And the fact that, uh, you know, this is all they can argue about is is sort of made-up complaints about what they they claim is a lack of process. I think it shows how unwilling they are to talk about the merits. You know, they want to talk about the substance of what the president did. Uh, because it's indefensible. And so all mm. they can do is try to come up with some way to attack the process. Now, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, while generally refusing to answer any questions about impeachment during uh, an interview that he did last week with the Wichita Eagle, uh, he's, he's reporting, reportedly considering a run for the U.S. Senate in Kansas. Uh, he did speak about it enough to complain about the closed-door interviews 
of State Department interview uh, d- diplomats arguing that it might hurt U.S. ability to work with allies. He said, quote, we're not even allowed to make sure that our officers and civil servants are protected. We're not allowed to have State Department officials in the hearing room to ensure that the information that we work with, with our uh, when our allies share information with us, we have an obligation to protect that information. We don't have anybody in the room to make sure that the State Department officials who uh, who are testifying are able to protect that. That's not right, he says. It's not fair. Does he have any point? Does this process endanger our diplomatic processes in some way, Randall? That sounds like a sort of argument in favor of keeping them closed and secret, doesn't it? I mean, oh, well, <laughs> admit, it, it sounds to me like if that's his concern, he would prefer that these be closed-door hearings and not public. Um, but no, I don't think so. These are this you know intelligence committee is used to dealing with the most sensitive information that our country has, and that's one reason they're having these hearings in a secured facility. But his argument, um, I think, is that there should be uh, State Department attorneys inside the room with uh, w- with the witnesses. Yeah, I don't see why that would be necessary. I mean, again, the the, the events that they're gathering information about. Mm-hmm. Uh, is a pretty isolated incident that does not appear actually to have been in line with our national security interests, but just the opposite. So, again, that, that strikes me as another uh, attempt to try to inject some idea that the whole process is being, you know, unfair. Um, I mean, their attorneys, certain State Department attorneys, certainly have the ability to talk with the uh, chairs of the committee and voice any concerns that they have, whether or not they can be in the room and the witnesses talking. Uh, but they're not powerless to make any concerns that they have known to the members of the committee. Is it is it fair to say that this this particular uh, impeachment process is uh, somewhat analogous? Um, well, let me ask this way. Is this impeachment process substantively different than the special prosecutors uh, that we had in both the Nixon and the Clinton impeachments uh, who held secret depositions and grand jury hearings and so forth before the matter was given to Congress and unveiled in, in public hearings in Congress as Democrats are now planning in this case. Uh, is it fair to say that these uh, that the testimony that is being taken in the secure facility is, is somewhat analogous to what those special prosecutors were doing in the previous impeachment cases? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, others have pointed out that in our prior impeachments, you know, the investigative work was done by a special counsel or an independent counsel. The analogy here would be if they had taken Mueller's report and just proceeded right to impeachment hearings based on the investigation that he did. Mm-hmm. But when it, com- when it comes to these Ukraine allegations, there, there was no really investigation, and, and there, you know, there was no new special counsel appointed or anything like that. So essentially the House committees are doing the initial investigative work that in, uh, that in those other cases were done by the independent counsels or special counsels. And then, like you said, that once that initial investigative work is done, it'll proceed to some kind of public, public hearing. Former acting attorney general uh, Matt Whitaker, who is a former U.S. attorney himself, uh, I believe, told Laura Ingram on Fox News last week that never mind the, the process in place, there is no actual crime here. I'm a former prosecutor, and what I know is this is a perfect time for a preliminary hearing where you would say, show us your evidence. What evidence of a crime do you have? I mean, the Constitution, you know, sort of abuse of power is not a crime. Let's fundamentally boil it down to, you know, the, the Constitution is very clear that this has to be some pretty egregious behavior. 
And they cannot tell the American people what this case is even about. Okay, well, uh, Randall Lison, you're a former prosecutor as well. Uh, Is abuse of power a crime, as uh, Matt Whitaker seems to say it is not? Well, I think the real issue is, is abuse of power impeachable? Mm -hmm. Um, And when the Constitution uses the term high crimes or misdemeanors, it's not talking about, you know, is there a particular title in the U.S. Code that you can point to uh, so, again, you know, some of the president's supporters are suggesting that if you can't establish an actual crime, you can't have impeachable conduct, and there's no basis for that. I mean, it's pretty clear that the framers thought that part of the impeachment reason to have the impeachment power was mm-hmm. to remove someone who was abusing the powers of the office, regardless of whether they actually violated a particular criminal statute, of which there were hardly any, by the way, at the time the Constitution was passed. There All right. Any Good point. Crime. Yeah. So, uh, but then the second point is this is this. Actually, if you were going to prosecute this, all the elements of a crime are there. Uh, the, the, the uh, you know, everyone's become very familiar now with the quid pro quo language. You know, was there an was there an attempt to get something from the president of Ukraine in exchange for President Trump exercising his power to release the money? And the evidence is pretty overwhelming that yes, there was. There was a deal. There was an exchange there that was being attempted. And that's all the the bribery law requires. It actually, you know, others have suggested, well, but Ukraine never did it. Mm -hmm. You know, Ukraine never made those statements, and so therefore there is no crime. That doesn't matter. If I shake somebody down for a bribe and they stand strong and refuse to pay me, you know, I've still committed the crime. Uh, Bribery doesn't require that the actual transaction be consummated. It's the abuse of power and the demand to get something of value from somebody in exchange. It's selling my office. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll exercise my power if you pay me off. That alone is the crime. It doesn't matter whether it ever succeeds or not. So, you know, yeah. again, you know, this is why they want to argue about process, I think, because on the merits, there's just very little you can say in defense of this of this conduct. But that's what it seems to be. And uh, I'm sorry to say I heard uh, Rush Limbaugh for a few minutes earlier today saying that uh, there, there couldn't be a quid pro quo because they, they never went along with it. Therefore, there is absolutely no crime here. Therefore, there is no ap- impeachable offense. That seems to be the argument that they're trying to make, I guess, at least when they're not making a due process crime uh, argument. But, uh, Randall, we also had the former chair of the Federal Elections Commission, Anne Ravel, on the program a few days ago, and she was quite clear to me that soliciting anything of value from a uh, a foreign government for use in an election is, in fact, a crime. Uh, So I wonder, A, uh, as a former prosecutor, do you concur? And if so, uh, is that a matter of criminal charges by the DOJ or civil charges by the FEC or both, or since we're dealing with the president, is that impeachable? Yeah. Yeah, I think in addition to bribery, like you said, I mean, uh, uh, there's also a, a possibility of election crime offenses that, that a lot of people have have uh, have suggested. Mm-hmm. I, I take it, I'm not an election law expert myself, I take it there are there's some debate about whether that would meet the thing of value requirement in federal election law if you demanded an investigation mm-hmm. versus, you know, demanding a contribution or something like that. So I, I think there is a potential legal issue about that, but I've read a lot of election law experts who think that this would qualify. Um, but again, you know, we're not talking about whether we have a criminal case that we could take to court right now and indict, because mm-hmm. for one thing, you can't indict the sitting president according to DOJ policy. So what we're really talking about is, is this the kind of misconduct that would justify an impeachment proceeding? Um, and 
you know, I think unquestionably, whether you talk about bribery or election law crimes or just the flagrant abuse of power, you know, withholding this congressionally approved money from a vulnerable ally to try and extort them into, you know, doing an investigation to help you get dirt on your political opponent, you know, <laughs> regardless of whether you can find a criminal statute that applies, it's a tremendous abuse of power and something that that justifies the impeachment inquiry. Well, you make that sound like a bad thing, Randall. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> since you mentioned that OLC uh, me- uh, memo that you can't indict a sitting president, which is only an opinion, it has not been uh, 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 determined in court, much less by the Supreme Court. There was a, a ruling, I think, last week or the week before. I've lost all track of time uh, in the uh, c- in the case where Donald Trump is trying to sue to prevent his uh, tax returns from being turned over by his um, by his uh, accounting firm, and the judge in that case basically says, "You know what? We've been working for years on this premise that the OLC memo saying a sitting president cannot be indicted. Uh, we've been dealing with that as if it is, you know, settled law or something. I think the term he used was etched by the Supreme Court." Mm-hmm. Um, And even as I understand, uh, the OLC under uh, the Office of Legal Counsel under Bill Clinton had a different take on that idea that a president, in fact, could be indicted. Isn't this uh, something that ought to be revisited? This has been sort of maddening to me and and particularly maddening when the uh, when the Mueller report came out, that it's sort of just taken for granted that that is the case, that you can't charge a sitting president despite really nothing in the Constitution that suggests as much. And, in fact, the Constitution now, with the 25th Amendment, you know, says that you can replace a uh, sitting president if he is otherwise indisposed. Uh, shouldn't we be revisiting yep. that question, uh, Randall? You know, that, that to me is al- almost a little bit of a distraction, because, to me, there are, there are plenty of arguments you could make in favor of the idea that indicting and prosecuting a president while in office would be so disruptive and would so paralyze the country that there are good reasons not to do that, policy reasons, whether or not you think it's mandated by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But the Constitution, you know, put a process in place, right? I mean, there's a process for a president who commits, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors or mm-hmm. other criminal acts. You impeach them and remove them from office, and then they're, they're open to prosecution. Mm-hmm. The Constitution expressly says that. Once out of office, they can be prosecuted. So it's not as though that OLC opinion means we're powerless. It's just that the process is supposed to be political first, you know, remove them from the office so the country can go on functioning with a functioning president mm-hmm. in place, and then you can deal with any criminal charges that might be appropriate based on their conduct while in office. So it's certainly worth revisiting and, and arguing about. Uh, I just don't see it as a top priority right now, because I think right now the priority ought to be the impeachment proceedings, and we can worry about any criminal implications down the road. Well, yeah, unless he starts shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, as actually came up <laughs> in the arguments uh, over that matter. Uh, Randall Elias, and I got uh, two more quick points I want to hit with you here uh, before I run out of time. Charles Kupperman, uh, who worked as Deputy National Security Advisor uh, until September under John Bolton, uh, he did not testify to impeachment investigators in the U.S. House as scheduled on Monday. Instead, he filed a lawsuit. He's waiting on a federal judge 
to decide whether he legally must comply with his House subpoena or whether he must follow orders from the uh, from the president and the White House counsel to not appear before Congress. Uh, I know you're not a judge, but I'm wondering uh, who wins that case. And if the court does decide that witnesses must answer a lawful government subpoena, uh, would that ruling apply to all of the other witnesses who have also failed to uh, answer lawful subpoenas at the orders of the White House? Yeah, I think potentially. I mean, and I think the subpoena generally wins that fight. I mean, mm-hmm. in other words, you don't you don't get to just ignore the subpoena and not go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go and potentially assert privileges if you have privileges to assert executive privilege or or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you don't just get to decide not to show up based on a request from the White House. So, you know, it's a pretty important principle that hopefully that, you know, this decision will, will help vindicate that this the White House has been stonewalling you know, these congressional investigations by just refusing to honor subpoenas. And, you know, it's, it's another example of these things that were sort of so fundamental to our concepts of, you know, the rule of law and regular order that you didn't think you were going to ever really need to confront them yeah. so starkly. You know, the just the idea that someone would just flaunt these processes and mm-hmm. and ignore them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the subpoena, you know, historically, <laughs> administrations have complied with congressional oversight subpoenas, and they might fight about privileges or whether to answer particular questions, but they don't just ignore them and tell their people not to go. Uh, and that really can't be sustained if we're going to have any kind of meaningful system of oversight and checks and balances. So hopefully we'll get a strong opinion from that. I think filing this lawsuit was just kind of a dodge, you know, or a way to buy for time. Uh, the witness feels like they're between a rock and a hard place, but mm-hmm. I I think the subpoena, you know, clearly has priority, and, and, and they should have just shown up. Yeah, and I think it might be helpful to get, uh, even though it was sort of a dodge or a delay, it might be helpful to get a federal, a clear federal court ruling on this. Um so that uh, the other witnesses who are doing the same get that message. Uh, before I let you go, uh, as a former uh, federal prosecutor yourself, I was curious uh, uh, about your take on the news uh, late last week that the DOJ's supposed investigation into the origins of the initial criminal and counterintelligence probe into Russia's alleged involvement involvement in the 2016 election has now become a criminal investigation being led by apparently by Bill Barr and longtime federal prosecutor John Durham, uh, currently the U.S. attorney for the District of Connecticut. Uh, A lot of folks are very troubled by this. I I wanted to get your opinion, your thoughts on it. Yeah, I have a mixed mind on that. So I think the timing was incredibly suspicious. I mean, the the fact that Mm. that announcement gets made in the height of these Ukraine impeachment proceedings, Mm -hmm. that seemed pretty... Uh, pretty strong indication that was a deliberate leak to try and divert some attention and, you know, take some heat off all of these things that were going on involving the president. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of the merits, it could, be a, it, it could be a tremendous abuse of power. So it could be the DOJ weaponizing the criminal prosecution system. And if that's what it turns out to be, then that's extremely grave. On the other hand, people have to keep in mind that the bar... Uh, no pun intended, so to speak, for, raising, yes. for, for, for initiating a criminal prosecu- investigation is very, very low. Um, and it's a far cry from actually indicting someone. Mm-hmm. And so even if they've just got 
a witness who they think lied to them or something, you know, at some point during an interview. I mean, that could mm-hmm. be, that could justify opening a criminal inquiry in, into that. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be kind of in a wait-and-see mode before we decide whether we think this was really a, an abuse of power or not. I mean, Durham, I don't know him, but he's got a pretty solid reputation among professional people in DOJ mm-hmm. as a guy that, with integrity. And, you know, assuming he has been completely co-opted, then, um, you know, presumably he would stand up to some, uh, you know, uh, attempted misconduct by a bar and others. So I'm kind of in a wait-and-see mode on that. I mean, the fact that it they're now calling it a criminal inquiry, that fact alone doesn't shock me because that's, again, a, pr- a pretty low bar. I was. Uh, I th- sounds like your take is is not unlike mine. My my thinking is sort of well, you know, fine. Let them investigate whatever they want. If there's a crime uh, committed somewhere, and if they can prove it, well, then I'm happy to know about it. But if not, uh, such an investigation is going to end with the DOJ being forced, I guess, to admit, yeah, what you know, what happened when the DOJ looked into possible Russian interference in 2016 was perfectly appropriate. I guess the the, the problem is they can drag it out so that we have a similar situation where they can spend the entire election ne- year next year saying, oh, this is all under investigation. Right. Uh, and then after the election, like with Hillary's emails, by the way, that just went away uh, a week or so ago, oh, we didn't find any crimes. Yep. Uh, no, I guess the fact of the investigation allows them, like you said, to suggest that this whole Russia thing is under some kind of cloud and it's not really clear that anything bad happened. It might just have been the deep state out to get Trump and it lets them just keep that keep up that story yep. as long as there's an investigation out there. Funny how that works. Uh, Randall Eliason, you can find his work at WashingtonPost.com, also at his own blog, SidebarsBlog.com, and on the Twitters at R.D. Eliason. Randall Eliason, always uh, great talking with you, my friend. I suspect we'll be doing it again soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we are back with Desiree Doyen and the Green News Report. That's coming up next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Yes, I called you Desiree at the end of the last segment, (laughs) your given name, Desiree, because do you have any idea how many people write in to me uh, saying how much they love you? Yes. And uh, and then they say, uh, let Debbie know I really (laughs) 
love the Green News Report. It has happened since I was a kid. I'm okay with it. Are you? Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. You know, as long as they like it, that's all I care about. All right, Debbie. Well, let's get right <laughs> to it then. Our latest Green News Report. It's about dog-eat-dog capitalism meeting climate change. It's about corporate greed meeting climate change. State of emergency in California amid massive wind-driven wildfire outbreak. Massachusetts sues ExxonMobil over climate fraud. Plus, we're protecting the oil. We're securing the oil. Trump's plan to take Syria's oil has a small problem. It violates international law. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and... Snarky comment. Trump says he will send federal aid for the fires, but first we have to come up with some dirt on Joe Biden. So that's... (laughs) Damn it. I knew it. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, California Governor Gavin Newsom had some pretty strong words for the utility companies that are shutting down power for customers all over the state of California last week. Oh my, yes, he did. California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a statewide state of emergency with upwards of 600 fires burning across the state. Firefighters are struggling to contain them from the massive wind-driven Kincaid fire north of San Francisco to the new Getty fire in Los Angeles. As we go to air, no deaths have been reported, but over the weekend, more than 200,000 people were under mandatory evacuation orders. Air quality is hazardous in affected areas. An estimated 3 million people have had their power shut off at various times to prevent fires ignited by downed electrical wires during this historic wind event. 43 of the state's 58 counties over the weekend were under high wind red flag warnings. The intentional power outages have hampered communications by knocking out cell phone towers, crippled city water pumping stations, and forced the cancellations of classes at schools and universities. More extreme wind events are in the forecast for this week. Governor Newsom has repeatedly emphasized that while climate change is the primary driver of California's explosive wildfire seasons, investor-owned utilities also bear a responsibility, specifically Pacific Gas and Electric, which courts have found deferred required maintenance on its aging equipment, even as it paid billions to shareholders and executives. Well, of course, which part of for-profit companies are you unclear on? I will forgive them the new realities and the acuity of a climate crisis of which we are feeling its impacts perhaps more than any other state in the nation. But I will not forgive them for not making the kind of investments in their equipment, hardening and undergrounding and anticipating this new reality of which they have had ample time to anticipate. California has warmed two and a half degrees Fahrenheit since 1970. The area burned by wildfires has increased 500 percent over that time. The widespread disruptions, according to former California Governor Jerry Brown in an interview with Politico, are a warning sign for all Americans of what could be in store in a climate-changed future. Well, let me just say it again. The state of California needs to take over these for-profit power companies that have failed the state so miserably. 
Meanwhile, in the nation's capital, we're securing the oil. President Trump, in a news conference on Sunday, announcing that a U.S. military operation in Syria had resulted in the death of the leader of the Islamic State, said that some U.S. troops will remain in Syria after all. We are leaving soldiers to secure the oil. Now, we may have to fight for the oil. That's okay. Maybe somebody else wants the oil, in which case they have a hell of a fight. We should be able to take some also. So the president of the United States still does not know that the United States has no legal claim to Syria's oil and that pillaging any natural resources of another nation is a violation of both U.S. law and international law, specifically the Geneva Conventions. Why should Donald Trump care any more about international laws than he does about our own national laws? Excellent question, unless perhaps later he cares about war crimes. Doubt it. In other news, after a four-year investigation, Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey has filed suit against oil giant ExxonMobil, accusing the company of defrauding investors with its financial disclosures, misleading the public, and violating the state's consumers through deceptive advertising about the role its fossil fuel products play in causing climate change and for threatening the world economy through its actions. Exxon is already on trial in New York over similar allegations that it misled investors by hiding material risks to its business from climate change. Finally, some good news. I thought that Exxon story was good news. A new public opinion poll conducted by the Washington Post finds that a large majority of Americans want to reduce oil and gas exploration rather than increase it in direct contradiction to President Trump's drill everywhere agenda. More than eight in 10 respondents said drilling in the United States should either decrease or stay as it is. And more than 50 percent want oil and gas exploration reduced on public lands and offshore. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Yeah, just let it be. Leave it in the ground. <laughs> yes. It ain't your oil. Hey, uh, this, uh, some, uh, I think, let's call it good news. I don't know if it's good news, but uh, let's call it's it mixed. good news. Uh, mixed news at best. Yes. Uh, Murray Energy, the nation's largest private uh, coal company, has filed for bankruptcy protection uh, on Tuesday. Did a little bit after we laid down our Green News report today. Yes, and but Robert Murray, the owner of Murray Energy, is a huge Trump supporter. Huge Trumper. And uh, made sure that Trump followed what he wanted to have happen for the coal industry and the Trump administration's attempts to, unfortunately, try to prop up the coal industry, which is dying. And sadly, coal miners are not being taken care of. We don't know yet what's going to happen in this bankruptcy to retired miners' pensions and yep. health care, current miners' You know, uh, Hillary Clinton tried to help them with that, and the Green New Deal would help them with that. Yep. Uh, well, we will have to uh, pick up that story uh, on another day and get into some more details on it, because I am quite worried about these miners getting screwed when it yes. comes to their pensions. Anyway, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Randall Eliason of George Washington University Law School, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it any 
anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you out there who support our work as the Green News Report gets close to our 1,000th episode in a week or two by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to support what we have tried to do for so many years over your public airwaves. And when I say we, I mean me and Debbie. <laughs> okay, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.